So it's with very great pleasure tonight that I welcome Gillian Triggs to the stage. Gillian has had a long and diverse career in international law. She was born in London and migrated to Australia along with her parents in 1958 when she was 13. She attended school in Melbourne and studied law at Melbourne University, then went to Texas to do a master's in law working with the Dallas Police Force on the implementation of the Civil Rights Act. It's a bit of a story there we might have to, we might have to go into there. She completed a doctorate a decade or so later, and in 1982 she was admitted to the Supreme Court of Victoria as a barrister and solicitor. Soon after that, she joined Malison Stephen Jacks as a, consultant on as a consultant on international law, practicing with them for 10 years before joining the Melbourne Law School as a professor of international law. While there, she produced papers on a range of subjects, including the WTO, energy and resources law, the law of sea, the law of the sea, international criminal law, international environment law, and human rights. In 2007, she took on the role of the Dean of the University of Sydney's Law School, and in 2012, as we all know, she was appointed the President of Australia's Human Rights Commission, a position she held for five years. She is now the Acting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner, and is here with us today to talk about her recently published memoir, Speaking Up. Please welcome Gillian Triggs to Milano. So, in, in the last email I sent out advertising this event, um, I described speaking up as not so much a memoir as a manifesto. And I did so not only because of the extraordinary range of topics that you're addressing <coughs> and the clarity with which you approach them, but also because there's not a whole lot of you in, in the book, really. Um, the way you've written it, giving yourself a first chapter that takes you from birth to the Human Rights Commission, seems to be saying, dear reader, this book is not about me. <laughs> But in some ways, it is. I mean, really, isn't it? I mean, we're all a bit curious about the events that shaped someone of your character. As I said in the introduction, you arrived in Australia in 1958. You graduated from university in 1967. These were heady times. Oh, yes. What sort of student were you at Melbourne Law School? <laughs> well, they were heady times. There's no doubt about that. Um, but there were very few. I think we were about 10 or 12 women out of more than 300 men in law school. So that was, <laughs> that was heaven for a young 18-year-old, uh, as you can imagine. <laughs> but they were also such enormously exciting times, really. Um, and I, I think it was a wonderful generation to be part of at, at university then. Um, we, we, um, the world was open for women, and opportunities seemed to be open. Um, we had educa education was completely, virtually free, um, uh, but they were, they were exciting times. We were a bit pretentious. We, we read um, Kierkegaard and read Simone de Beauvoir, and, and we, we used to have, I remember those old Chianti bottles and stick candles in them, and we used to talk about mainland China and the war in Vietnam, and, yeah. and all that, but we had views on everything. We had opinions on everything. Must have driven everybody, every adult m mad, our parents. Uh, moratorium marches, um, but there was a sense of liberation in the air. The Beatles came to town. Uh, they were very, very exciting times in which we were very engaged politically, and I became fascinated by one knowledge, but also understanding the world I was in and seeing for, for women that we could ride this crest of a wave of great optimism. 
And so you were actually quite overtly political, because I noticed you also became um, student of the year in, at Melbourne. Is that right? Is it, it, in your final year? No, it was a lot worse than that. Oh, okay, sorry. And, and you're the first person ever to ask me this question. <laughs> I, I don't know whether I should answer you truthfully or not, but perhaps I should. No, I was, I was Miss University 1965. <laughs> <laughs> I have never admitted and here was that, me. I ever. Thought, I thought it was because of your marks. No. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely not in the book, I can assure you. <laughs> oh, there you go. That's fantastic. That's no, terrible. A terrible thing to admit. No, no, but anyway, it, it, kind of, it kind of makes sense because in the colour photograph section in the middle of the book, you can see a picture of Gillian in a pair of very skimpy white shorts and a kind of naval oh, yes. thing in Dallas, yes. working, working in a restaurant as a, as a, as a waitress as or a some kind of... Absolutely, yes. Well, I, I, um, I was on a scholarship there to, to um, a university to study international law, but I nonetheless, like every student, had to earn a living, so I was a, a, um, re a, a waitress in a fish restaurant. In, in Dallas, Texas, and I learned to say, um, y'all come back now you're here, <laughs> which was the way you finished every conversation in, in, in Dallas, Texas. Um, but I, they used to, we were paid a dollar an hour, but we were absolutely dependent on tips, and you, Americans are incredibly generous, and you'd get 15, 20% tips just for what they thought was my British accent. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, you, you got a scholarship to the university in Dallas to do your masters. How did you end up with the police department? Well, um, th that was really a, a, an important part of my life in a way, not realizing, of course, that nearly 50 years later I would end up at, you know, as president of the Human Rights Commission. But um, I, I did a summer internship, again, because I needed the money. Uh, so over the summer I worked for the new chief of police in Dallas. And he had received some funds, federal funds, to improve the employment of, um, of a wider range of diversity in the Dallas Police Department. Because when I went, it was all college-educated, white, middle-class American males. And they, despite the fact that 25% of the population was black and another 25% was Chicano-American, they weren't reflected in the police department. Um, and so this very liberal-minded chief wanted legal advice on what was then the civil rights legislation in 1964. We're now talking uh, 1970, 71. Okay, but so I've got the dates was, a little bit uh, wrong. But, but from the 1964 was when the civil rights legislation was passed by Lyndon Baines Johnson yeah. after the assassination of Kennedy uh, in Dallas, Texas. Uh, so there was a sort of link there, and, and the chief of police was determined to give effect to this civil rights law. But he couldn't get any legal advice from the Attorney General's department in Dallas, Texas. They just refused to give him the legal advice. So as, a, as I, was, I was then, I don't know, 28 or something, he, he said, look, I wanted a summer internship and I want advice on the civil rights laws. So I, with incredible confidence, totally unjustified, I, I just did what lawyers do. I read the act, read the law, and said, this is what you're supposed to do, and gave him the advice. And he said, well, like, I can't get that from anybody else. This means I can go about putting a quota system for so many blacks, so many women, so many Chicano-Americans. Um, would you like a job? So I said yes, and I was there for another two and a half years until he was sacked by the, by the city uh, for being too liberal. And when we left, I don't think there were many more women, blacks or Chicano-Americans in the Dallas Police Department. I, it would, what I, the lesson I learned, and it's a very important one, is that passing laws doesn't always solve the problem. That you need to develop a culture 
that, that embraces the ideas. You need the laws as a foundation, but it doesn't actually get you there. You have to bring people with you. And, um, and that uh, obviously meant that real change in, in, in America took much longer to achieve. Mm. And interesting enough, you went there to study international law, but really you came away in, I mean, in the introduction, reading what you're doing, international, international law, but really you're a human rights lawyer, aren't you? I mean, that, that's, that's been your, your focus almost ever since then, in some way or other. Well, at that time, um, my thesis was on, the, on a very new area of law, which was the, the individ, individual status before international tribunals, the European Court of Human Rights and Commission of Human Rights. It was very new, the idea that as an individual you could bypass the state of which you were national and appeal to an international body for human rights protection. So I was very keen on it. But then, then the reality hit when I came back to Australia and I had to earn a living. And my PhD thesis was on territorial boundaries, um, like the Timor Gap boundary or uh, South China Sea. And then I worked with a law firm, and I worked mainly for oil and gas companies as a, as a, as a traditional commercial lawyer. Um, and I did very little human rights law work because I could never earn a living doing it. Um, and it wasn't until um, Nicola Roxon, the first woman to be appointed an attorney general in Australia, when she rang me and said, I'd like you to take over as president of the Human Rights Commission. And I said, well, look, as you know, although all international lawyers do human rights law, I was not a specialist in the area. Do you really want me? And she said, yes, I want somebody with a broad understanding of international law. Um, and so I accepted the job. But I've really become an international lawyer in the human rights field over the last six years. Okay. Mm. So, um, because I was thinking about, about this, the way that you actually kind of moved through. Maybe you could just define human rights for us a little bit, because it, 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 it was quite a new concept. It's a post. It's a post Second World War concept. I, I, I think I was reading some history up on it. Actually, in 1949 is when the first Commission of Human Rights ever comes into being, and it was actually a, a, a British Tory government that was very uh, mm -hmm. pushed it. Yes, indeed. Extraordinarily, indeed. ironically, one might mm -hmm. say. Yes. Well, contemporary human rights law. You're right. I mean, you can go back in the history books and you can find, of course, references um, the Magna Carta was actually, more than 800 years ago, was a foundation that pulled together some of the core ideas of the common law. So the human rights really came from the common law, the judges who developed principles. And one of them, and I, I must mention, because I know that many of you are interested in, in refugees and um, very much a topic of, of today with, with Nauru and the Wentworth by-election, um, but... The, the key point is that if you go back to the Magna Carta, if you haven't looked at it since you were at school, go back and read it. Not only is it the Jews you, to your feudal lord and the, the content of a glass of wine and so on, but in the middle of it, uh, in the Magna Carta, you find this remarkable phrase, no man may be detained arbitrarily without charge or trial by his peers. Now, that was forced on bad King John by his feudal barons for their own purposes, of course. But nonetheless, it reflected the common law principles. So I don't want to give you a full lecture on all of this, but the point is that no, the, I think, no, but this is the really, core freedoms it, 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 emerged from those judges um, who, bit by bit, principle by principle, developed the freedoms of freedom of speech. And many emerged from the, the, the bitter battle between James I of, of England and... Um, and, and um, uh, the Chief Justice um, Cook, um, who insisted uh, that the judges had to have independence and that even the sovereign 
is subject to the rule of law. And those ideas emerged from the Magna Carta and were carried all the way through the 17th century to the now the 21st. But what happened when the war, the Second World War ended, there was a genuine attempt to say, if you breach human rights law, uh, human rights, fundamental freedoms defined in the common law, you inevitably lead to conflict and war. So that they linked the ideas of the rule of law, of protecting and respecting human rights, and world peace. And a man who played a very significant role in that was, of course, that rather feisty, brilliant, somewhat irritating Australian, Dr. H.V. Ebbett, who was there for drafting the Charter of the UN and then the 1948 Universal Declaration on Human Rights. So Australia was a good international citizen. We built on that. But what happened was that the core common law principles the judges had established for millennia were incorporated into that remarkable document um, that uh, Doc Evatt, along with Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, drafted. So although it's modern law, it actually grew from the fundamental principles of the common law. And in fact, in your book, you express... I was going to leave the kind of um, refugees and asylum seekers till later, but we kind of brought them up, so let's go with it for a minute. Um, one of the things that you express in the book is your extraordinary disappointment in the High Court in Australia Mm -hmm. for ignoring what you Mm -hmm. see as the fundamental basis Mm -hmm. of the Magna Carta, Mm -hmm. which is that you can't there should, you cannot be, you use the, I'll get you to be more specific, but you use this expression, no penalty, mm-hmm. that you should not be, right. you can't be sent incarcerated, A, without a trial, and you can't be incarcerated without, you know, in a, such a way that it presents as a penalty. Do you want, could you talk to that a little bit and explain what you mean by that? Yes, well, um, I, it, it's, not a, it's not usually acceptable for a, a a mere lawyer like me, to be criticising the High Court of Australia. We have very fine judges and we've had a very fine legal system in Australia. But it is deeply disappointing to me that in the last um, nearly just about 20 years, our High Court very, very, well, will not refer to international human rights law to inform their judgments. And what has happened, particularly over the last 20 years, is that we've placed all our emphasis on the sovereignty of Parliament. And if you ask the person in the street, well, you know, do you think it's appropriate that Parliament should be sovereign, that, that, that the word of uh, the final rule of law depends on the people we've elected to Parliament? And most of us would say, well, of course. But what do you do when you have a government abade, aided and abetted by an opposition that passes laws that explicitly breach those common law freedoms? Now, I would argue, and do argue, that ultimately the courts must respect those common law freedoms and respect the treaties to which Australia is a party. But what our High Court has done is to say no. Um, if Parliament has said that the mig- in the Migration Act, for example, but also in the counterterrorism laws and all, all data retention laws and all the other fields of law that concern me, um, if Parliament has spoken and is clear, then the courts will, pl- will abide by that rule of law. And that, that is something that I'm very critical of. And in, uh, can I give you just one example? Please. It's a bit of a legal, legal example, but we're the only common law country in the world and the only democracy in the world that does not have a charter, a charter of rights. It's astonishing. Um, and can I just give you one example of a case? It's a case of, um, t- talking of refugee law, a woman who, who was picked up in the, in, in the Pacific. Um, uh, she was brought to Christmas Island a Bangladeshi refugee, she was pregnant, um, and she was taken as law required to Nauru. 
Um, but mercifully, and there's some humanity in the system, she was allowed to come to uh, Brisbane to have her child, her baby. Um, but she then resisted being returned to Nauru in those appalling, dangerous conditions. And litigation lawyers, pro bono lawyers, brought the matter ultimately uh, towards the to the High Court of Australia to challenge uh, the Migration Act and uh, her deportation to Nauru. And as it got closer and closer to the date of the High Court decision, the lawyers, the public servants and lawyers, started to realise, they read the Migration Act properly, and they said to the minister, well, as a matter of fact, we've checked the Migration Act. There's nothing in the Migration Act which permits you to deport somebody to Nauru from mainland Australia. Somebody who was born in Australia. Uh, including a child born in Australia. Um, the mother, of course, not having been. Um, as, a, as a Bangladeshi refugee. So what did they do? They introduced a new amending provision of the Migration Act, <laughs> section 198A2, which filled the exact flaw in the legislation and was retrospective to cover the very period of that Bangladeshi refugee. So the matter went to the High Court of Australia and the High Court, the majority six judges, all said, well, the Migration Act did not permit her, her deportation. There was nothing in the Act that allowed you to do it. But when Parliament, with the com uh, compliance of the opposition, agreed to that amending provision, it repaired the damage, it repaired the flaw, and it was now possible to deport her. There was one judge, one of the seven judges disagreed, a woman, Justice Gordon, and she said, just a minute, we have a fundamental principle of the common law that's in the Australian Constitution. There is a separation of powers between the executive and Parliament and the judges. Only judges can impose penalties, and that was to go to your point. Only judges can, can, can try you, according to the law, and impose a penalty. To return her to those conditions on Nauru, said the judge, um, is a penalty, and the government has no power to do that. Um, if she's to be sent there and deported, she must be charged with an, with char with a, with a, with an offence, she must be tried, she must have a right of appeal, and uh, we as judges have the power to do it. Now, unfortunately, that was a single judge, and all the other judges ignored the common law principle from the Magna Carta, ignored all of the treaties to which Australia is a party, emerging from those years of Doc Evatt in the, in the 1940s. Um, not one of them, not one of the judges, ever referred to the human rights law. Nobody referred to the Convention on the Rights of the Child or the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights or the Refugee Convention or the Convention on Torture. All of these are legal principles that Australia played a very strong role in negotiating and which are binding in Australia. But very sadly, and I know this is a very technical legal point, but sadly, those treaties have never been implemented in Australian law, so the courts can ignore them. And, and that is... That is that is a, 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 something I deeply am concerned about, but I'm even more concerned about the fact that our judges ignore those core common law principles because they do so on the ground that Parliament has spoken, Parliament is sovereign, and we will ignore that principle in the Magna Carta that no one may be detained arbitrarily without charge or trial by their peers. And, and even more than that, somebody cannot be charged with doing something that wasn't a crime at the time that they it's did it. It's not a crime. No? You can't crime. change the law uh, post facto and say... Exactly. So, exactly. That, again, it's a fundamental principle of the common law. But the way our constitution has been created and, and the emphasis on the sovereignty of parliament means that when you get massive numbers in parliament voting for these policies, 
uh, the courts will not override it. And, but if we had a charter of rights, and that is where I sort of land at the end of the book, if we had a charter, just as New Zealand does, Canada, the United Kingdom, most of Europe, if we had a charter at a legislated level, we'll never get one constitutionally. We can't amend the constitution to take out the race power. We can't give indigenous recognition in our constitution. It's politically so difficult. We're never going to get a constitutional um, recognition uh, of the Bill of, of any kind of charter. So what I'm arguing for now is some legislated benchmarks, which I understand Queensland is actually looking at at the moment. Um, well, I mean, I remember I, I spoke to Gareth Evans in this forum about uh, almost exactly a year ago, and he, one of his great things when he came in as Attorney General under under the Whitlam government was to mm, try indeed. and to try and bring in a charter of um, you know a bill of rights that was his thing that That's he really right. wanted to do. Well, Gareth and I were in fact at law school together in the sixties. Oh, wait, so you, so basically it's and just so, you know, labour rat bags. So we're, you know, we're, <laughs> exactly we're left wing radical leftovers from the sixties, sort of semi hippie you know yeah. groups. Uh, Try, trying to enforce something that the Tory government in Britain had it, already in, introduced. Had introduced so. already. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think we are, we are sadly out of step, um, and I think it's very much to the disadvantage of Australia, because if we had those fundamental principles, we'd be able to deal with other issues, like 100% of juveniles in the Northern Territory are Indigenous. 95% um, of incarcerated, incarcerated, ju juveniles, incarcerated juveniles are Indigenous, in I'm sorry. Yes. Um, uh, 55% across the whole of Australia. Um, we have the global worst figures for incarcerating Indigenous Australians, um, that we have shocking figures. Um, but if we had, and deaths in custody continue 25 years after the Royal Commission into deaths in custody, Aboriginal deaths in custody, um, they continue. Uh, and the numbers are now significantly higher than ever before. Out of home care, um, if, you're if you're an Indigenous child, you've got a, you're 10 times more likely than a non-Indigenous child to be taken to uh, out of home care. And that is almost like building a highway from out-of-home care to juvenile detention to adult detention. These children's lives are being um, destroyed at a very early age because we simply don't support them and their families as we should. But I think when we look across the spectrum of issues, including, in my view, the regressive position of women in Australia, uh, economically, the fastest growing group of homeless in Australia is women over 55. Um, given that I'm significantly over 55, I'm very concerned about that one. But, um, but I think if we had benchmark standards that, that gave the courts the tools to fight back against the kind of legislation that we're getting through Parliament, then we would, we would have a fairer and more just society in Australia. So is there a possibility of that happening? I mean, I know you just said that possibly Queensland, I believe the Victorian mm. government is also considering a charter of, of rights. Well, we have a charter in Victoria. You do already have a charter. Uh, and there's already one in the ACT. Uh, and I understand it's being drafted here in Queensland, so you may very well tilt the balance. I know last night, I think, the um, abortion law was passed, yes. uh, which was quite extraordinary. But it may be that Queensland can actually provide a very significant leadership role because I understand that the um, Pelichek government is looking, has drafted um, a charter. Now, these are charters at the state and territory levels, but when you get the public, the communities, seeing the value and putting some trust in the charters and start to see the outcome, then I think there might be a better political opportunity to pursue it at the federal level. But we virtually certainly will never get one with the current government. We will only, there's only any chance of achieving a charter with a change of government. Yeah. And, but going back to the 
what you were talking about with the High Court, because it, I mean, it seems to me that if you approached any person, any woman in the street on the, on, on the bus, the, any woman on the bus, as we say, and asked them whether or not you could be tried for a crime that wasn't a crime at the time that you committed it, or if you took, you know, if you asked her about what the High Court had done, she would be outraged. Mm. So how can we be sure that even if we have a charter of rights that the High Court is going to listen to that? Well, the court, the, the, a court will be required to. Um, in other words, there would, in the Charter, there would be a, um, a right to freedom of speech, a right to freedom of association, um, but a, right, a prohibition on detention without charge or trial. And there's usually in a Charter a provision against retrospective penal sanctions. So that if they were in the Charter, the court would have to take notice of those provisions. Okay. But one of the objections, and you hear about it a lot in the public arena, is and it has a facile or superficial attraction, and that is, wouldn't you prefer to have your rights determined by a sovereign parliament with elected representatives than by activist judges? That's the argument. But in my view, it's a false argument. Um, our judges are not left-wing radicals. Uh, they are very conservative, and they will in, uh, apply those provisions as, as in an appropriate way. But I think we especially need it where we have, I believe, a failure in representative democracy in Australia. The parliamentary process has historically always been one that stood up for common law rights. And we now have parliaments that will not even consider those common law rights um, and, and will not consider the international legal treaties to which Australia is party. They're just not discussed by parliamentarians. And, it, uh, and as you might know, um, this government over a number of years has called for the abolition of the Australian Human Rights Commission. Um, along, I might, as you all know, the abolition of the ABC. Um, oh. it's the, that's, the, that's where we are. But it's, uh, I think it's because of the, the complexity of these constitutional issues, I think most Australians are not really aware of it. Um, and perhaps if I could give you an example, a few years ago there was a survey done of about 3,000 Australians by the Electoral Commission and they asked Australians, do we have a constitution? And 48% of Australians said no. Um, they asked a second question, um, and that is, do we have a Bill of Rights? And something like 67% of, of uh, uh, respondents said yes. And I have another example, which is even better, and I do apologise because we're in Queensland, but I saw a news item a couple of years ago from Queensland as a ma of a man who'd killed his wife, his partner, and as the um, cufflinks were circling around his wrist, he said to the police officer, I want to take the Fifth Amendment. <laughs> we, we know more about our rights from American television programmes. Uh, than we do from our own common law. And so one of the things that I, that I do talk about in, in, in the book is the need for more civics education. Um, but, uh, but the government will not, um, you know, won't, won't allow that. Teachers, there's a bit of a chilling effect for teachers when they talk about human rights. And a lot of people have said to me, you know, even people of great good faith, especially teachers, have said, look, I'm very, uh, you know, I'd love to teach more of this, to really understand these legal principles. Um, the rights of our Indigenous Australians, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, but, but can't we use a word other than human rights? It's all too controversial. Um, so I say, well, that's fine. I don't care what you call it. Why don't you talk about civics? What, did it, what is it to be a citizen? What responsibility do you have as a citizen to understand how important these common law freedoms are to our, to our democracy? 
Um, but it is very difficult. Um, I mean, you'll recall the Safe Schools program was, has been diminished and demonised by the government when all that was really being done was to say, let's establish a stay safe environment for yeah. all children, uh, um, depending on, on their, uh, their emerging sexuality. And this is one of the things that we, just before we came on stage, uh, we were part of a conversation there that you were talking about this thing that the government uh, or members of the government have this incredible habit of slandering mm. a particular group of people on absolutely no basis at all, like, for example, Save the Children Fund on Nauru, saying that they have been interfering and, and uh, schooling schooling the, uh, mm. the refugees in dissent or whatever mm. it was that they were. And, and, and self-harm, and self allegedly. Mm. <clears throat> and then on the basis of that, banishing them from the island, only to find, you know, when the, when the inquiry is, comes into it, that there was no basis of it, in mm. fact, at all. Mm. And, and, but the damage is done. Exactly, and, th and that is really the, the, the problem of this, this post-truth and alternative fact world we live in. Um, and, and it's wonderful to hear, hear Patrick um, talking about uh, the, the, the great scholarship that's gone into the... the, 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 the um, the, the, the climate change panel and the UN, I think more than 90 scholars yeah. providing the evidence across the world of climate change. Uh, we've had our own reports and the Finkel report here in Australia. Um, uh, governments dismiss them with this extraordinary phrase, some report. Yes. Um, the, the, one of the troubling aspects of this post-truth environment is that, is that, that, that expert, good faith, measured scholarship um, and advice is being ignored in favour of subjective ideology, and one that you know I think, along with the with the um, uh, with the Save the Children Fund, was was the one that was so powerful politically. Was the allegation that um, asylum seekers were throwing their children overboard to be rescued and brought within Australian jurisdiction? Um, that, as you might recall, was a, an allegation made by the Howard government and by the Minister for Immigration, I think it was Peter Reith, among others. They all leapt on that statement, and I think it was about two or three weeks before the election. They gained the political benefit of it. Six months later, a Senate inquiry found that there was not a scintilla of evidence to support that statement. But what it did was to create an environment that licensed people to be anti-asylum seekers to be um, anti-Islamic, because almost all were, were Islams. And you might recall that some months after the children overboard um, uh, misstatement, to put it politely, was Tampa, and a few weeks later was 9-11 and the terrorist attack. And I think if one's ever to draw an historical line in, the, in, in history as to when things changed in Australia from us being committed international citizens, good international citizens, to now almost a pariah in some respects. Um, it would be that period when we move from commitment to the Refugee Convention and to many other, the, um, many other uh, international legal principles to a conflation of asylum seekers with um, Islamophobia, with protection of national borders and terrorism. And that created an environment in which politicians used fear to justify the unprecedented expansion of executive power of the government, ministerial discretions, and the, the vast array of legislation that we now have on, um, on uh, counter-terrorism, 
the massive expansion now of the new Ministry of Home Affairs. And you may not be aware, but a few days ago, the government's introducing new legislation to create a new um, uh, International Office of uh, Intelligence, a new security agency that pulls all the agencies together and gives them unprecedented access to your information without a warrant. And that is where, as a lawyer, I say we need to stand up and demand better evidence and explanations. That governments now have access to our metadata, to our personal lives, in the interests of national security, which may be justified. Uh, at the Human Rights Commission, we were involved uh, peripherally in assisting Indigenous Australians across Australia, across many, many languages and, and different um, patterns and social behaviour and culture and history. They pull the Uluru Statement from the Heart, a genuine exercise in consultation, asking the government a very simple question. Will you allow us to be consulted on matters that concern us as Indigenous Australians? And it was dismissed within 48 hours without any explanation or justification at all. And, and um, introduced this complete furphy about a third chamber, which, exactly. it, which, it, which it is not and it's never and never was intended to and be. And that comes to your point about, about, uh, about falsity and, and, and misstatement and, and post-truth, that uh, there was never any request that there be a third chamber of parliament, but it was done deliberately to persuade Australians that this was... This was a hard-line constitutional change, which was unacceptable. One of the things I learned... Well, that's, that's, that's right. I mean, but, I mean, a core point is that, at minimum, uh, we should consult and work with uh, Indigenous communities around Australia. And I'm afraid uh, even that simple and considered measured request was, was rejected. And I think that is something that other Australians should should stand up for and speak up for. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Gillian talks about the Macaraca and the, uh, the Macarata and, and that whole process in her book. But one of the most troubling sections of the book for me was the chapter that you've got under the heading Tours of Duty, which is where you were going out to visit these various different detention centres mm. on in Australia and in Christmas Island and Nauru and, and Manus and, and all these different places, and writing these reports um, as the president of the Human Rights Commission and, and your staff and everything, and bringing these back to the government. Uh, how is it for you to do all that work, to see this level of suffering, not just once, but twice or three times, going back to these same people and finding these reports being, uh, be, being ignored? Well, it was, uh, it was very discouraging, of course, and, and ultimately it made me even more determined uh, and a little bit angry. Um, I was listening to Patrick talking about being, being professional uh, and objective and calm, um, but I did become really quite impassioned about, about this because all of our reports were, um, were evidence-based. The law was simple. You don't need a PhD in international law to know um, that these acts are illegal and immoral, in my view. Um, so it was very discouraging. Um, especially when they, saw, they, they really challenged me personally. They couldn't challenge the facts, and they couldn't challenge the law in Senate estimates, for example. But they, so they turned their challenge against me personally. And that really it just made me all the more determined, because I knew... Um, I hope without arrogance, but I, well, I knew that we were right. 
And, uh, <laughs> I think the reason that you're filling holes around Australia are that there are a lot of people in this country who are incredibly grateful to you for being really one of the very few people who has stood up for the, the values that this country would like to be seen to represent. And we're just, we're, we're very much in your, in your debt. Uh, I didn't mean to say that right then, but there you go. Because... <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, um, <laughs> Thank you. Well, the Senate, Senate estimates was a sort of fairly scarifying experience, really. I mean, you're sitting there, in one case, for eight hours uh, with no breakfast, no lunch and nothing. Um, and the senators have all got plates of sandwiches and, and cups of coffee. <laughs> Next time, you, if you ever, ever tune into Senate estimates, just watch and see what's happening. I'm a great fan of Senate estimates because it's the one environment on television where public servants and statutory officers like me are questioned. And so they should be. Um, it's supposed to be about what you do with the money, but I don't think in all the five years I was there I was ever asked about the budget. Um, I was only ever asked about my political inclinations and why I was attacking the government policy on, uh, on uh, asylum seekers. But when I was speaking to a wonderful lady before we started on, uh, about the fact that when you are standing on Christmas Island covered in phosphate, white phosphate dust, it's hot, you're exhausted, you're being given the cold shoulder by the guards and by the government officials, and you're talking to a mother with a baby um, or with a young child, a teenager asking for education with no, uh, no schooling. You, you, they remain with you forever. You can't walk away and say, well, I'm not in that job anymore. I'm getting on a plane and I'm going back home. Um, good luck. Um, they, those people that I have met in the detention centres in Villawood, in Yonga Hill, um, uh, Christmas Island, uh, all of the th and then 13 detentions around, uh, detention centres around Australia. Those people I will never forget in my life. And, and I think that really has made me all the more determined to speak up uh, uh, for them, but also for all of those that I think are so mistreated by, by government policy. So it never leaves you. And do you think that there is hope? I mean, are we... Are we grindingly slowly but possibly coming to some kind of bipartisanship where we can get out of this terrible bind that, that as a country where the government has to keep doing because it, it can't lose face and, and the opposition can't do it because they can't afford to, to, to be uh, seen to be being less strong than the, than the government. Well, I do have hope and I'm, I'm very optimistic, partly because I think these policies are un-Australian and it's not what... A, what fair-minded Australians around the country really believe. I think the tide is turning. Now, we've seen this deeply cynical um, act uh, by the government in the last couple of days that they would consider accepting the New Zealand offer to take 150 children. Uh, this is done, I expect, for the purposes of the Wentworth by-election. Um, oh, we're, we're prepared to move our, our, our embassy to Jerusalem oh, on the indeed. Base to, to, to well, win the Wentworth by-election. I know. I mean, it's quite... <laughs> It's quite extraordinary, um, and I think Australians see through it. Um, but the cynicism of treating these children and their families' lives in this way appalls me. Um, but behind the scenes, some of the children are being brought back for medical reasons. Um, but I wonder if I could just tell you one short story. Um, it's another case, if you'll excuse me. But although I've been very critical of the courts and the failure of the courts to 
uh, support the fundamental principles. There was a very interesting decision um, just a few months ago, uh, two or three months ago, by one single federal court judge, and it concerned one of those children who was mentally ill, suicidal, had attempted suicide on a number of occasions, and the mother and the senior medical officer on Nauru had been pleading uh, with Mr. Dutton to allow that child and the mother to come to Australia for medical treatment. And it had been rejected, along with a number of other children, I might add, but, but staying with this one story, um, I think a 10-year-old boy, um, Mr. Dutton had refused over a number of months to allow the child to be brought to Australia for medical treatment. The litigation lawyers fought the matter in the federal court in a pro bono matter, and the judge didn't do a talk about any of the treaties or the Migration Act, didn't deal with any of that at all. He went for a very simple principle of the common law of millennia, uh, years of, of, uh, of, of background. He said, the government has a duty of care to that child. It's such a simple idea. He said there's a duty of care to that child, and he ordered Mr. Dutton to allow the child to come to Australia for medical attention. But then the judge did something that I've never seen a judge do before. He checked the flight schedule, <laughs> and he said there is a plane tomorrow between Nauru and Brisbane, and he said, I expect to see the mother and that child on the plane tomorrow. Now, I have never seen a judge do that. <laughs> so we can get it right, and, and some of our judges get it right, but isn't it interesting that you go back to not the sophisticated law and article this or that of the Children's Convention, you go back to the principles of the common law that underpin, I believe, our remarkable democracy. Mm. Now, one of the interesting chapters in the book that you've got here is the whole question about freedom of speech and 18C. Yes. And um, look, I, I don't want to go too much into the detail of it because you go into One of the things that Gillian does in her book is she speaks so lucidly about very complex legal matters and just kind of brings it into them. But the, the government and, um, should I say, you know, the, the Australian, the Murdoch press and its political wing, the Liberal Party, uh, set, 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 out, <laughs> set out to destroy you and the Commission specifically, and, and 18C was the one mm. that they really went for. Mm. And the classic example was the Bill Lee cartoon. Yes. Which, I, I mean, I remember it quite clearly. Which we managed to include in the book. Yes, mm. which, how did you get the copyright position? Amazingly, to... the family allowed me to use it. Okay. And good for them for doing okay. this. So the, the, the cartoon is, is a, a clearly racist cartoon, and, it, and it, um, it's, it's not a pretty thing, and it came up. But the, the story that we were all told was that the Human Rights Commission had waded in to try and, in some ways, bring the commission down. And that's actually not the way the commission acts, if I can speak here for a moment for, for Gillian. What, what, I'm going to get her to, to, to elucidate a bit more. What the commission does is it receives complaints from other people. And a particular woman had complained, an Aboriginal woman had complained about this cartoon to the Human Rights Commission. Now, the Human Rights Commission was bound, therefore, to investigate the complaint. What I didn't understand about 18C, which has these four words, insult... Offend, insult, humiliate and intimidate someone in the public arena because of their race. But it's not any one of those four. It's all four. Uh, exactly. It's always dealt with as a group. Okay, so it's all four of those. Mm. But what I didn't realise was the existence of 18D. That's right. 
Nobody realizes 18D is there. And when the government and uh, Mr. Abbott tried to abolish 18C, nobody ever, he never mentioned, and nobody ever mentioned, the following article, which is um, the best legislative form we have for the protection of freedom of speech in Australia. There's no right to freedom of speech in the Constitution. The High Court has implied a right of political communication, which is not quite the same thing. But 18C, AD says if you were to offend, insult, humiliate, and intimidate somebody in the public arena because of race, if you did that with a rude cartoon, but you did it in good faith on the basis of fair journalistic comment, or it was an artistic exercise or a scholarly uh, piece or, or political, appoint, uh, political opinion in a paper. All of those are protected by the right to freedom of speech. The government never mentioned it. And, and it was very hard to get it into the public arena. So basically what Jimmy is saying is that there was no case, right? Because Bill Leake was allowed to put that cartoon mm. and the Australian was allowed to publish That's it, right. it because it was because, for, for, because the legislation right. declares it to be so. That's right. What the Australian didn't tell you was that they're not supposed to talk about it they're supposed to, it's all supposed to be confidential, anything mm. brought before, but mm. the Australian used it as a, as a platform That's to right. try and destroy the Human Rights Commission, but specifically you. Yes. Yes, I mean, um, I, try, I try to keep saying it's not about me, um, and it really wasn't about me. I, I was just a conduit. I was just a lightning rod. Um, it could have been anybody who was in that position, um, but I think what they were a bit surprised about was that I... Um, as you might know, the Attorney General offered me another job, which would have been actually a rather nice one. But anyway, I, of course, rejected it because by, if I'd accepted it, I would have let down all of the people in the Australian Human Rights Commission who'd worked on this, and I would have let down the whole statutory purpose of my job, which was to stand up for these principles. That's in the statute. Yeah. Um, the government never seemed to read the statute or even understand it. But, um, but, the, but the key point was that... Um, the, 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 um, Bill Leake's cartoon, unpleasant and, in my view, racist, in my, in, my, in my estimation, I can say that now, I'm not in the job. I yeah. wouldn't have made that statement when I was in the job. But, but, but in my view, it was. But it was probably saved by 18D as part of the right to freedom of expression. Yeah. Um, maybe, probably would have been. Um, but again, nobody in, in, the, in the media was prepared to concede that. Um, but one thing that has to be observed is, that firstly, there was a highway between the Liberal cabinet, the barristers here in Queensland, um, uh, uh, and other barristers, along with the editorial team at The Australian. But the other bubble of newspapers, the Fairfax media, didn't go near the issue at all. They, didn't, they barely reported it. So you, you, when, you, when you see a, a, a political issue of this kind, you start to realise how divided the media is. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm getting aware that we should go over to questions from the audience, but I, I, I've got one last question, if I may, before, before I hand this over to... This is always the killer question, I know. No, so. no, no. <laughs> it, it, no it's, just, it's just because of how I started with um, talking about you personally. And what really is of interest to, to me, and I'm sure to a lot of other people, is where you do get that resilience in yourself for, from to stand up to the level of vilification that you were receiving during those years as president of the Human Rights Commission? Well, I am asked that question a lot, um, and I have tried to think about it, but I don't honestly think I've got an answer. I mean, I think I was... Because I've, I've been a trained lawyer and because I knew what my job was, and because I was, I was supported by such wonderful lawyers... 
both in the community as pro bono lawyers, um, the, by the legal profession, by the bar association, um, and, and by, the, by, by the terms of the statute, I was determined that they weren't going to, um, they weren't going to succeed in diminishing me or stopping me, because if they did, I would have let the entire um, rule of law um, and human rights basis of the statute and of the Human Rights Commission, I would have let it all. I would have let it down. Yeah. Um, the whole point of my position is that you're protected by the statute. I could only be sacked by the Governor General who appointed me. Um, I could only be sacked if I committed a criminal act or went bankrupt. I was probably more likely to go bankrupt than I was to be a criminal act, but neither was the case. I, I think I just felt very strongly, maybe I, maybe I translate these things into, into determination and, and maybe a bit of anger, as I said before. I was just so um, infuriated that they could ignore what I knew to be right, that I, I really just wouldn't let them cut me down. So, you know, the other thing is, of course, that when you're in the eye of the storm, you don't always notice it. Um, and I could come home every night and burst in through the kitchen door, and there would be my husband with a gin and tonic. And uh, he listened to my tirade, uh, and, and that always helped. The family was terrific. But also, I'd have to say, and I don't think the government ever really understood this then or even now, but fair-minded Australians were so supportive um, they'd stop me in the supermarket, on the train. We got so many um, bunches of flowers coming to the Australian Human Rights Commission in, in Pitt Street in Sydney that I thought I must have died the week before and nobody, <laughs> nobody told me. We took photographs of it. But I got, I got knitted scarves. Um, I got lace handkerchiefs with, with, with the lace stitched around. Um, I got... Um, letters in pencil in those old... You remember those Coles notepapers with lines on? And somebody, I, in my mind at least, sitting at a kitchen table in a country area, write, in pencil, writing me a note to say, you know, good on you, stand up for these rights, it's worth doing. I don't think that our politicians at that time ever understood that Australians see bullying for what it is, and we see even more of it now. Um, and I think those people really helped me get through. I felt, well, these are good, fair-minded, decent Australians, and they really support what we're trying to do, even though they may say, well, we've got to protect the borders, we must uh, protect national security, maybe you have to hold people in detention to achieve these outcomes. They may have disagreed with me politically on a number of issues, but they were still fair-minded in saying, this is our democratic process and you're playing a role and we can accept or reject what you do, but we don't accept the bullying and denigration of somebody because of something that they're doing that's, that, that's their job. And, and I think when you, when you realise that that is the bulk of Australian feeling, then I think that gives you a sense, to answer your question, of great optimism for the future. This will pass. I think... Thank you. So we're going to take some questions now. Um, thank you, Gillian, for your, um, for your words. Um, just back on the question of the Human Rights Charter, um, my understanding is that Victoria has such a That's charter. That's right. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, and that it's had one for several, many years. Yes, and, and that was successfully used in the case of shifting on homeless people around the, the, the Flinders yes, Street indeed. station last indeed. year yes. by appealing internationally yes. um, to make that operative. And yes. the effect of such a charter is to hold a, a government accountable exactly. to, to such exactly. a thing. Exactly, yes. <coughs> My question is, um, are, are you aware of, of, of the, um, the, the movement in, in Victoria to uh, pr develop such a, a charter, the idea nationally, um, to talk about it with uh, Labor and, uh, and others, and, and what the prospects might be to see such a national charter um, developed if, for instance, there were a change of government? Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. And, and uh, what I should perhaps uh, remind you, maybe you don't need reminding about it, but it was um, Queensland's um, um, Father Frank Brennan who ran a national consultation on the need for a federal charter of rights, uh, which I think he presented to the government in 2009. And the Labor government at that time uh, accepted that recommendation and wanted to move forward. Unfortunately, uh, they bolted at the, at the hurdle and withdrew uh, their, their, um, their support for a charter. Um, th there is quite strong support around Australia for a charter. Um, and my, my um, I think it's likely that were we to have a change of government and were that government to win a second term, then I think there's a reasonable chance that the charter would come back again. I, I, I do believe uh, that senior members of the shadow cabinet of the Labour Party support a charter, um, but I think they will have to be... They're in a very dangerous position at the moment because they don't want um, any... Uh, they don't want to allow an issue like a charter of rights to be used by the coalition government to attack them in the, in the weeks going up or months leading to the next election in, in a few months' time. So they're not going to raise it and they're not going to discuss it. Um, it, just as, of course, they've not really wanted any distinction between their views and the government's views on asylum seekers. Um, they want to win this election, and they don't want to give the coalition any basis for, um, for challenging it. But I think the, the, uh, the short answer is yes. I think that if we have a change of government, and when that government becomes confident enough, it will introduce a charter of rights. And I think there's a growing sense, because of the events of the last 15 years, that we now clearly need one. And it would include, to go to the previous gentleman's point, it would go to uh, including uh, a recognition of the need for consultation with our, our indigenous peoples and may include a clause on the need to protect indigenous culture in Australia. So there are very, I don't know what it would include, although I obviously have got my own thoughts, but I think those are ideas that could be included in a charter. If it's a legislated charter, it could be changed the following year. In other words, it wouldn't be cemented in stone, it wouldn't give the courts the power like the United States Supreme Court, but it would allow us to have some benchmark ideas that would then inform uh, decisions of public officials, it would inform our education system and our un understanding of, the, of, the, of our rights, and it would give the courts the power to call the government to account, as you, as you say. To what extent do you think that um, politicians and people in the public eye either completely misrepresenting or like using misleading statements about um, law or incorrectly using legal terminology in relations to like, for example, refugees and asylum seekers 
how is that is that creating new legal norms that are detrimental to mm. like the foundation of our society um, what is it doing to the whole system of law in general well, that's a that's a very interesting question um, I, I think it, it's a little like when you say something that's untrue but you say it often enough and it's repeated in the media it becomes almost normative or, or normal and becomes a truth in its own way um, I mean the, the classic example and we can't possibly have a discussion tonight without mentioning Mr. Trump once um, <laughs> but you'll recall that when he was uh, inaugurated as president uh, his press officer said that it was the largest attended inaugural presidential <laughs> in the history of the United States and the history of the universe ever. This was objectively untrue. It was false. And the, um, Anne Conway, I think the, the, one of his press people said, well, when that statement was made, we were simply presenting an alternative fact. <laughs> now, there is no such thing as an alternative fact. There may be alternative facts that would moderate your view or change your perception, but there's no such thing as an alternative fact unless you live on another planet and the world is just all relative. Um, I, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about this um, because of the phenomenon that we have almost suspended disbelief because we've moved, and I find this bizarre, but we've actually moved from reliance on science and facts and evidence to subjective ideology, uh, and we've moved into our silos. It's paradoxical, because we have access to more information now than we've ever had in the entire history of mankind, and yet it's almost so much information that we've fragmented and gone back into our silos, and we now believe what we want to believe. Um, and I find this very sad. Certainly when I was at school and at university in the 50s and 60s, science was king, the facts were king, and yet now, uh, we are responding to issues ideologically rather than by reference to inquiry and to the facts. And our willingness to reject reports um, in favour of ideology is very, very disturbing. And I think that's where civil society has got to stand, stand up to this and to say, these are the facts. I'm really actually delighted to be able to speak to you tonight about all of these matters because the ABC did a fact check on me about two weeks ago and I got a big tick, and they said fair and accurate. So I'm very pleased. <laughs> I think we've got another question at the back here. Yes. Gillian, uh, thank you very much for being here. I'm your secret admirer. <laughs> I did not knit you a jumper. I didn't send you flowers. But I was very happy what you had done in the, under very difficult circumstances and what you have stood up for. And that's great. I really admire that. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed your appearance on drum oh, last good. Thursday. You. <laughs> you did pretty well there as well. But just one thing I wanted to say that might be of some interest to all of us, and that simply is this. I am the supporter of that legal group that is urging Queensland government to have the Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. Now, last Friday, after your appearance on Thursday, Friday, I wrote to our local member. I am from Brisbane, New Farm. Grace Grace, I wrote to her 
that since you had promised in 2009 to really put it, this bill through the parliament, are you going to do it quick enough? Are you going to do it before the end of this year? She has said yes. Mm. Well, that's good news. That's very good uh, news. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I, I think it's good news because it, it, it could, as I said before, it could just be a tipping point because we've got Victoria, we've got the ACT. It will be marvellous to bring Queensland in to this. And I don't need to remind Queenslanders that you've really had one of the best traditions of supporting civil rights in this, in this state uh, relative to other parts of Australia. Um, and, and maybe you're in a good position to be arguing for this. Thank you. Um, Norm, Norm had a question. Hello, Gillian. I'm an octogenarian. Probably going to be an oxygenarian before very long. <laughs> um, I like what you said about Bert, because Bert Ebert, because oh, I was yes. in Melbourne at the time when he was in the United Nations. Wonderful. My question is, what do you think is going to happen to the United Nations charter that, that, at the moment? Because it seems to me that the government is ignoring all those things, especially the the law of the sea and all that's that sort right. of stuff. That's right. It's bigger than, than human rights. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, you need a crystal ball, I think. Well, it, it is. It, it's a crystal ball, but I think um, I, I think that the charter is still enormously important, and it's respected by most countries. Um, it's an extraordinary experiment in global lawmaking, and uh, people can be very disappointed by the charter, by the by what's actually happened. Um, and I'm disappointed too because of the enormous power of the, uh, of the five permanent members, uh, the, uh, the nuclear weapons powers, that in fact those five states have actually controlled what's happened within the UN. Um, but we shouldn't forget the good work that the United Nations does. And um, I've recently been appointed chair of a United Nations body that's investigating um, abuse of office within the UN because they're looking into their own practices and looking, for example, at the work of UNAIDS. Now, they have, from the get-go, from 1996, took on a, work, a global problem of, of UNAIDS, and they've not solved it, uh, but they've achieved many of their goals, and they've saved the lives of millions upon millions of people. And they continue, of course, to stand up for and, and talk about the 65 million people who are moving across national boundaries as displaced people um, and so on. So I think what I'm saying is I think the United Nations has, been, has disappointed those of us. And, and Doc Everett fought against the veto power. He argued against it and lost that argument. Um, it's been a very destructive aspect of the building of the UN, but at the same time, we probably would never have got the UN Charter if we hadn't agreed to the permanent, uh, uh, um, the permanent members, the five for permanent members having a veto vote. So one has to be pragmatic. It's a, it's a huge global experiment that, that's in its early stages. And so I believe that it will have a future. Uh, I believe it, it is modestly successful in some areas. It's unsuccessful in preventing conflict and war, unfortunately. Um, but that's become the, the realm of the big powers, even though they do it through surrogate uh, disputes. But I still believe in the principles of the United Nations, and, and critically, that key principle, that if you breach human rights, 
you will inevitably lead to conflict. And perhaps if I could give one example, um, the, the refusal by Myanmar, Burma, to give citizenship to the Rohingya people has left them for decades with, in a position of statelessness. And that has led to rape and murder and what the United Nations describes as a classical ethnic cleansing. 900,000 have fled to one of the poorest countries in the world, Bangladesh, where they now have um, uh, living in refugee camps and trying to find a, a new life. Amazing that such a poor country has nonetheless given them refuge against an appalling uh, regime. But it makes the point that when you don't give people a simple thing like nationality and you exclude them as an other in a community, inevitably you lead to these problems. So I think the ideas behind the UN remain true, but we've got a very long way to go um, in, in a, what is actually quite a primitive international legal system. But we should support it, in my view. Thank you. We've got, look, I think we've got, we're starting to run over time, so we've got one more question, if that's all right. I'm sorry to disappoint people. No, there's a, a, already a hand up here, I think. Yes? Um, well, we've heard um, um, various ways that we might be able to impact change. Um, can you offer recommendations or, or suggestions on how we can improve this ghastly situation, this shameful situation in Australia regarding refugees. Um, marches seem to have disappeared to some extent. People write to their local member, people sign online petitions, but you, you have this sinking feeling that it is not, nothing is, is truly changing. Uh, so I just want to have some feedback. Um, well, uh, you know, I... I, I I don't have a, a, a simple answer to that question because it's something that I've been deeply involved in for the last six years in particular. Um, and all of our reports, all our evidence, all our legal analysis, all the public speaking, all the books have not changed it. We still have um, about, I'm told, 80 children still on Nauru. But we also have, and they've been forgotten completely, um, 300 men on Yo in Yonga Hill. Does anyone know where Yonga Hill is? Well, you see, you're a, you're a committed and interested group of people with no idea where it is. It's two or three hours drive north of Perth. It's a maximum security prison. And there are 300 men there whom I visited as one of the last things I did as president of the Human Rights Commission. They've been there for years. No one in Australia has even heard of them. It's out of sight and out of mind. We have 1,300 people in mandatory detention in Australia alone and something in the order of 300 still on Christmas Island. And that's not counting the 600 on Manus Island and the hundreds that remain on Nauru. And yet the issue has disappeared. Uh, if I could very briefly answer, my generation, we depend on iconic images. And you'll remember the image of the indigenous teenager in the steel restraint chair and the spit hood. I'd reported on that two years earlier. Nothing happened. It was completely ignored until we had Four Corners. And we saw the CCTV footage, and we saw that vision of a 16-year-old indigenous youth on, in Dondale Detention Centre. And the Prime Minister was on the phone to me at 6 o'clock the next morning, saying, Gillian, shall we have a royal commission? Well, obviously, I said yes, and you know your own Mick Gooder and Margaret White took over and, and ran that royal commission. But it takes the image these days to move hearts as well as minds. My generation, it was 
a nine-year-old girl running down the streets of Hanoi with napalm burns. We all know what it, how that moved people. Uh, uh, four or five years ago, it was the body of Alain, a crumpled four-year-old boy drowned on the beaches in Turkey. I thought that if we got the iconic image in relation to Nauru and the, and the suicides, that would change hearts and minds. We've seen the pictures of a man throwing petrol over himself and burning himself, killing himself, in front of UN representatives on Nauru. It didn't change anything. It, was just, it just went by as yet another form of self-harm and suicide from Nauru. So I'm at a loss to know what the answer is, except that I now believe that representative democracy has failed Australians, not only on, on asylum seekers, but on so many other issues. If that is failing, civil society must move forward and move forward with the business community. They often get this stuff earlier than the government does, but work with not-for-profit sectors, civil society, with the business community, and speak up and stand up, but ultimately vote. Because I think civil society has never been more important. And, and I think that is, our, that is our hope for the future. We must write the letters, but I think we need to, uh, being a, a girl from the 60s, I think a demonstration or two is a jolly good idea. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think we've been a little too measured and a little too calm. I think a bit of vulgarity, a bit of, a bit of getting out there, might be, might, it might be about time we did it. I'm a patron of the Knitting Nanas, and they, they, they <coughs> if there might be one here, they sit outside offices and knit, like um, uh, Madame Defarge in, in uh, The Tale of Two Cities. Um, maybe we need a bit of that. I was just two years behind Germaine Greer at the University of Melbourne. Um, Maybe we need a bit more outspoken um, vulgarity. Uh, we need a bit more action. We're too measured, we're too educated, we're too calm. I think we need to start to stand up for those principles that in all sorts of ways, in, the, the asylum seeker issue is out there, it's staring at us, we, we see it. But what we're not seeing is the massive expansion of executive discretion in the um, data retention laws, in the in the espionage laws, these new laws um, of so-called foreign interference laws, dog whistling to people in racist ways. Um, I think we've got to start reading the legislation and standing up and speaking up uh, for core Australian values that I think are slowly being lost uh, in the interests of ideology and political opportunism. And the, the answer lies with us, ultimately. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.